Hi folks, I'm Mark Fallows and this is the Impossible Network podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe on iTunes or your favourite podcast player. And please leave a rating and a review because it helps more people find us. If you want to find out more of what we get up to, or suggest who we interview next, follow us on Instagram at The Impossible Network, or visit theimpossiblenetwork.com. Okay, let's get started. We talk about genius a lot, and we generally try to avoid the word, except maybe in its original Latin form, where it meant that which is distinctive about the person, not that which is extraordinary. That that idea, the way we use it, comes from the 19th century. And the reality is that some people start out with a much more distinct point of view, and through their own efforts and luck and context... Because remember, the world is playing its role in all of this. They end up in a position to be part of a really extraordinary idea, Mm -hmm. to be advocating and promoting a really extraordinary set of works or ideas. I've worked in the creative industries all my life, yet I've never considered creativity from a psychological and developmental perspective until I sat down with this week's guest, Michael Hanchett Hansen, author and founder and director of the Master's Concentration in Creativity and Cognition program at Teachers College at Columbia University. In part one of the interview, we cover the impact of Michael's upbringing, the dual influence of his mother and father, his mentors and his early ambitions and growing up in the Texan Bible Belt. Michael deconstructs the social material and temporal components of creativity. We discuss genius, distinctiveness and exceptionality. Michael breaks down creativity and explains the impact of education on creativity the value of deep learning and explains the domain general and and domain specific theories of creativity. Michael debunks the notion of out of the box thinking and provides an alternative mode and we discuss the value of constraints in creativity. Finally, we cover serendipity in his journey and how he applies creativity in his life. And of course, all the quickfire questions. I hope you find value in this vibrant and vigorous exploration of creativity with Michael Hanchett Hansen. Michael, welcome to the Impossible Network podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. Thanks for being on the show. So before we dive into your journey into developmental psychology of creativity, we'd like to understand more about your development and your childhood and what led you to being you and the impact of your upbringing, your early years, and particularly your, your parents. So maybe you could just riff off that and um, kick off. Wow, that's complex. That's a really big question. So I was born in Texas in Amarillo, which is uh, way up north. It's not, a song. Not, not song near about, to anywhere. Yeah. Song about Amarillo. Route 66, right. Mm-hmm. And um, that is the, uh, that's the Bible Belt. That's yep. a very serious Bible Belt. In the 19, I grew up in the 1960s. And I think that that was a very important thing for me because the society that I grew up in is very dominated by Christian fundamentalism, not in my own family or not my immediate family, but uh, in general. And I think that discourse set the questions that became very important in my life. Not the answers, but the questions. So questions about what is it to have a good life, what is one's responsibility to other human beings, and what is it to have a meaningful life, and to have meaning, what, how do we make meaning, became really big guiding questions for me. What stimulated that? Was it? It was in the air. Uh, It's kind of hard for people in the Northeast to really grasp. 
I always, when I was growing up, I thought it must be a little like the Middle Ages, where certain, certain church organizations really controlled the politics and the schools, even the public schools, and had huge influence throughout. And so it's sort of in the air of how you're thinking and, and what's being discussed. I was um, a pretty bright kid, but I was not, I was kind of sickly. And so, not unlike a lot of people who just, who develop distinctive points of view, I had to spend time alone just because I was sick. Mm-hmm. So, I started out very young, kind of almost doing junior hermeneutics on like biblical scriptures and reading Aquinas and, and that sort of thing. And then... Was it, I, just as a matter of interest, was it a Catholic school? I, I do have a Catholic background myself. My, my, my broader family, they're, they're more fundamentalist. And priests were, you know, the Catholic Church gets a very hard rap these days, but some of the most inspiring men in my life were priests who were just wonderful influences on, on me growing up. But also my father. My father had a economics degree from Kansas City University. But it's funny that all the, he had a few economics books like Keynes, etc. But mostly he had philosophy and history. And I still keep his marked-up copy of Beyond Good and Evil next to my next to me on my uh, nightstand. And so, I think he was a frustrated philosopher. I don't know how frustrated he was. I think he was pretty happy, actually. <laughs> but he certainly thought philosophically. Mm-hmm. He thought deeply, and he thought philosophically, which su- would have surprised most of his peers. They would not have thought of that so much. But I was very aware of that. And so, at a very young age, like in junior high school, I was reading his college textbooks, and I was very highly influenced uh, by him in that sense. He had also grown up in Kansas City under the Pendergast machine in the 1930s. So for listeners and myself who don't understand what that is. So that is basically a period during uh, Prohibition uh, when in Kansas City uh, there was a democratic political machine that was basically organized crime, and so they ran the whole city. My dad loved golf and was a great golfer all of his life, but he started caddying when he was six years old, and he saw people snuffed at the golf course. Oh, my goodness. And, you know, it was prohibition, so my parents, my grandparents were going to speakeasies. And so he grew up with a sense of irony, because he grew up in a place where you had to understand appearances, but they were very seldom what they uh, presented themselves as. So he had a very keen sense of irony, which served him well in the Bible Belt as well. And my mother, who had grown up in Texas, in the, on the high plains of Texas, I think gave me the sense you can do anything because it kind of seemed like she could. She was a roll up your sleeves and get it done no matter what kind of person. Very accomplished, a business manager in a time when women generally were not. An amazing seamstress, later an extraordinary cook, uh, a designer. And she certainly, I inherited from her an aesthetic drive that made me, I mean, I'm very... I'm very much a, uh, a theory wonk, but really I'm very aesthetically driven. Interesting. So just go back to your father and that, that keen sense of irony that you had. Mm-hmm. How did that rub off on you, or how did you Well, I did my, di- my doctoral dissertation on ironic thought patterns at a time when, I mean, today actually there's quite a bit of work in cognitive science on ironic thinking, but at that time there wasn't. And um, the way I did it is working with a really extraordinary, my mentor was Howard Gruber. And Gruber had been Jean Piaget, who was a very famous developmentalist uh, protege, and he had brought Piaget, he had had translated a lot of Piaget with Jacques Banesh. He had written uh, The Essential Piaget, still a very influential book. And he 
took those developmental aspects that Piaget applied to normative development of children and applied them to lifelong development of non-normative thinking, i.e. creativity. And he had done a lot of work with metaphor, but he'd never done anything with irony. So it was a real pleasure to get to work with someone of his depth and also someone who thought very philosophically, as did Piaget, and to do so around a question that was so exciting for him because he had never done it before either. Before we get into that level of detail around your your training, your university, your research, mm -hmm. going back to your upbringing and how did the... The, the the home life with your parents there were clearly intellectual individuals in their own right with their own mm -hmm. very specific mm -hmm. areas of focus how did they let's say school you at home what was the influence of them in terms of your you said you were philosophizing you were questioning life even at a, at a young age how did they bring that out in you how did they encourage you because a lot of children don't they just go through childhood development just enjoying the reality of the moment I think they just let it they stood back and let it happen I mean my father and I were very close and so I think there was probably a lot of influence there that I couldn't point back to memories about certainly we discussed politics over dinner every night and you could not go to dinner without having watched the evening news but the, I think a lot of it's they just let it happen. I'm gay, and when I was young, there were wonderful photos of me dressing up in my mother's clothes and playing with dolls and that sort of thing. And there was, you know, and they just let things happen. So they gave yeah. me a very safe place to grow up. And, you know, in the high plains of Texas in the 1960s. Single, ch single child? Yes. That's uh, surprising, given everything you said about the cultural reality at the time, being yeah. in Texas, Bible Belt, father with a deep sense of irony. Yes. <laughs> it's, it's quite interesting that they must have had an interesting conversation. When, when did they think they, they first, well, presumably dressing up in your mother's clothes was probably a, a, a good sign. You would think, but you know, I, I do think that uh, part of the influence of all of that was just maybe a little bit of denial. Once I ultimately came out to them, many, many decades later, they were surprised. And I was like, have you been paying attention? <laughs> did, did you? But no, I, th I think that, just to get back to your question, I think it was a very safe place. Mm -hmm. It was a safe place to explore who I was. It was a safe place to explore ideas that other kids might not be thinking about. It had books that were at levels that other kids didn't think about reading. And like I said, my mother's aesthetic sensibility is very refined. And she she instilled that in me. Mm, probably appreciated your sense of style. She did. <laughs> she did. Well, we <laughs> obviously it, appreciated yeah. each other Exalted, since yeah. I borrowed her clothes. <laughs> and what about school? Did your behavior sort of spill into school? Uh, no, because in spite of all that, I was still pretty butch. I loved school. I always excelled at school. There was one time in the seventh grade, we just went to a junior high school, and it wasn't, that, it wasn't as academically challenging mm -hmm. as it had been, and I got really bored. And then my mother stepped in and said, okay, let's go take Spanish. And she and I went and took Spanish. They were very um, supportive of that sort of thing. And what about play with friends and explore, exploration and discovery? I'm sure I did. Yeah, a lot. <laughs> but you don't have any... No, that's not... I wasn't a playful kid. No? So you were more... I mean, I, obviously I was. I was a very creative kid. But I wasn't, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that I was particularly playful. Mm -hmm. No, with friends or just uh, I did. I mean, I had friends, mm -hmm. but I would so I how, would I wouldn't so say that was a particularly salient part of. So I how was would you very describe yourself then? 
as a child. Oh, I was a serious kid. Just serious and contemplative a, and thoughtful. Oh, yes. Yeah. So talk to me then about your journey beyond school and at what point did you start to focus on a particular career path or a f- area of study at university and where your interest and your focus was going to be? Well, you know, I'm very much a cognitive voyeur. I love watching people think. And I love teaching for that. I love watching and working with students and just seeing them think through things. And I try to apply that to myself, and I try to apply how I think. And like I said, I'm very aesthetically motivated. So what seemed at the time when I, I came east to school and I studied at Yale, and I woke up my the last week of my senior year of college and thought, oh, I was supposed to be a history and philosophy major. But instead, I had an architecture degree. And looking back, even though at that point I thought, oh, I, you just really messed everything up, I don't think I did, because I think that that really is the way I think. Architecture, space, the way space interacts, it's a wonderful thing to study. It's a, it's a way of studying how materiality and social dynamics come together into material form and how material form affects sociality. And that's what I think of psychology. Yeah. So it really was very formative in spite of the fact that I didn't realize it at the time. It's interesting, our um, other partner in the podcast, Elaine, studied, she studied architecture mm-hmm. as well. But she then evolved into doing user experience design mm-hmm. in the same way that people navigate through space in the virtual world as they do in the real world. Exactly. And understanding negative space as well and how you put the barriers you put in the way or how you open up yeah. opportunity for people to discover things exactly. uh, is all part of that psychological understanding, user experience design, really. And mm-hmm. I suppose that's where there's a crossover as well with um, psychology and understanding mo- motivations and barriers. Yes. Because a lot of this is one of the key components of the psychology that I work in is uh, distributed cognition. And so that looks at how thinking is distributed socially, materially and temporally. And you know we can you sorry, we um, given that, that we manipulate symbols in our head in the short term, right? You'll you'll have a thought that comes to you, or you'll be uh, looking at something, and and you'll think, oh, I wonder if that was upside down, what would happen, etc. But if you don't record that somewhere, if you don't write it down, or you don't tell somebody about it, or you don't reinforce it, it goes away pretty fast. Your brain is really not set up to do that kind of thinking. Your thinking gets distributed onto pages, onto art canvases, onto dance studios. It, it's, it's distributed. And it comes a lot from social interactions. It comes a lot from discussions like the ones we're having, right? That's when thinking takes its form. So ideas in your head need the world literally to take form. And so that's what we look at. When a painter thinks, of that thinking is in the painting. Yes, he or she may be walking down the uh, street and see something, see an image and think, oh, I really want something like that. Or may have, something may come to our minds as we're we're in some reverie, but the work happens in doing, in the actual doing. Mm. I have this with graduate students all the time, right? Because they can understand that a painter thinks in the studio. But somehow, when it comes to writing papers, it needs to happen the night before. (laughs) (laughs) And I am constantly telling to them that writing is thinking, and they need to start writing now. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it it is very interesting. I spent the the break 
during the podcast saying to Bettina, right, we're going to take a break from the podcast. I'm just going to do these little five minute thought pieces, reflections. Mm -hmm. It took more time to sit and write those five minutes of narrative to get clarity in my own thinking of all the influences of everything that people had discussed during the podcast. And it meant writing it down, coming back to it the next day, revisiting it. I go, oh my God, I'd never want to be a writer. Mm. Never write a book. I mean, that must be torture to go oh, through that. Oh, no, it's wonderful. But you're a writer. You've done it. You've it's achieved wonderful, it. It's wonderful, but, but you, it is, but the book takes over. Can you just define those three stages again? Social. Social. Right. We're socially distributed because we get our ideas from other people largely. We get them in conversations. We build them in conversations. We talk about, you got to talk about things to help you think. Materially. We express things across time and space through works of art, through books, through music, uh, music spoken um, word, all, all everything. Yes, yeah. through through podcasts. Yes. So there's a material distribution that occurs, and then temporal, right? Because it is across time. And as a developmentalist, we're thinking about what happens across time. I told you that I'd studied with Howard Gruber before, and one of the really interesting things about him, one of the things that we look at developmentally is how creative people will often organize their lives around a big and ultimately unanswerable question. Like Frank Lloyd Wright organized his, his work around explicitly around the question, what is organic architecture? There's obviously not an answer to that. There are many and continuing answers. Gruber organized his around how long does it take to think? And that and that was a really generative question mm-hmm. for him. And so that is part of the distributed, the temporal distribution of thought. Right? It's interesting. We had a, a, one of our favorite guests is Chantal Martin, mm-hmm. another member of Neuhaus. And she's an artist, a visual artist. And she, her, let's say, the question that underpins all her work is who are you? Mm-hmm. A real yeah. ex, existential exploration of mm-hmm. self and a deep dive into are you you and mm-hmm. who are you and when you reach the point of knowing you are you then it's about then how do you express it and she does this through her art and through spoken word it's fascinating so mm-hmm. I'd, i wish i'd known that definition of what the way you described that when we interviewed her because it might have given us a slightly different angle but that's so that's really interesting so we've got that that clarity on the on the, on the social the, the temporal and the material. material yeah okay so that's good and you describe that as in terms of the relationship to creativity as the developmental... Yeah, so what Gruber... And all of this is actually a riff on Gruber because he he wrote a great deal, and he wrote about it in different terms. He was writing before we had a really good hold on complexities uh, theory in systems. And so a lot lot of what he was writing is, is slightly in different terms, but a lot of it is coming out of that. And what he defined creative development is the long-term development of a distinct point of view. So you develop a new point of view, but purposefully. You want to. You want to write from a different point of view. You want to paint from a different point of view. You want to do science or to analyze creativity from a different point of view. And is that the the very essence of, would you say, creativity, that we're always trying to, to try and create progress is to reinvent is to strive for originality whether it be of expression or thought well that's the way we put it when we talk about creativity I would more, more go with Cassirer 
who says that we are a symbol-making animal. We are what? A symbol-making animal. Mm -hmm. And symbol systems are always dynamic and changing. Mm -hmm. Symbol systems are never static, right? And as an animal that works in symbols, we then are, we can lead to the statement that you just said, that yes. we are always then engaged in change and meaning and depth and elaborations, etc. And when you say symbols, just because to explain to listeners, so what you mean by that? I mean it in the broad sense of the term. I mean words, I mean artistic forms, I mean musical forms, mm -hmm. I mean musical scales, I mean the... Dance. The dance, anything, yeah. yes, yes. The choreo choreogra choreo choreography, sorry. Mm -hmm. It could yes. even be quantum physics. Absolutely, yeah. very much. I mean, physics I'm, and math are I, completely symbol-based. I mean, right? Einstein himself, and the way he pursued his critical creative thinking by just uh, thought experiments. Right is interesting in itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, when, yeah you, when, you're, when you're working in a dynamic of any symbol system, and this is the same, we were just talking about writing, and you are saying what it must be like to write a book, right? When, it, when you write a book, or when you write it, even, even when my graduate students write a long paper, and this realization for them is a big one, because, you know, they can write many papers, but we're never talking about what it is to write, usually, when you write a paper. That there's a point at which the formation and flow of the ideas and the words begin suggesting their own directions. And so you now are in conversation with the work. You are not exerting your will on the work. You are participating in the work. And by the time it gets to the end, you are actually serving the work. It is not, it is not serving you, right? If it's worked well, mm -hmm. if it's come out well. If it's not, then you is probably that, have a problem. Is that the feeling you get, or is that what you believe to be happening? Oh, right. I believe that to be happening, absolutely. So where's that coming from? That It's that coming from the nature of language systems. Language systems, language suggests its own dynamics as you put it together, and there's a point at which you get to a critical mass where the dynamics is complex enough within there that for you as the author to exert yourself into it requires something extraordinary, you know, a huge edit, a huge change in direction, right? Mm. And even to do even that is part of your relationship to the work. So what does that mean then in terms of whether you're a dancer, whether you're a writer, um, a musician in terms of like the 10,000 hours, the sacrifice, the persistence, the patience, the endurance you go through in any creative pursuit right. that defines perceived or recognize genius from just the mundane and the average. Is that something that you can you you consider or you you've covered in your research? Yeah, we talk about genius a lot and we generally try to avoid the word except maybe in its original Latin form where it meant that which is distinctive about the person, not that which is extraordinary. That that idea of the way we use it comes from the nineteenth century. And the reality is that some people start out with a much more distinct point of view and through their own efforts and luck and context, because remember, the world is playing its role in all of this, they end up in a position to be part of a really extraordinary idea, mm -hmm. to be advocating and promoting a really extraordinary set of works or ideas. And then there are other people who may have very similar talents, etc., but may have a slightly different emotional profile and different kind of drive. 
and a different setting and a different set of resources, and they may go a very different direction. So the genius is not in the person. The genius is in the work as it coalesces socially, materially, and temporally. And by the way, I think that that's a very helpful thing for people. A lot of the creativity rhetoric about it was imperative for everyone to be creative and uh-huh. and holding up geniuses, old and new, right, that are supposed to be your role models and all of this, can put an extraordinary burden on the individual to somehow, and then we tell them to think outside the box. The, the, the expression, I hate most of anything uh-huh. related to creativity, especially if we're telling children this, because it tells you that somehow your experience and your knowledge is not good enough that you always need to do different. You always need to go beyond. And what we know developmentally from looking at many, many case studies of people who do really extraordinary work is that they don't think outside their boxes. They build different boxes. Mm -hmm. Exactly, yeah. And sometimes they start out with different boxes. But isn't that the very nature? If you 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 look at, you get a child and you ask them to do something, they'll approach it from their you, their own particular perspective. It's only uh, as Ken Robinson said in his famous TED talk, we, you, it's education that teaches creativity out of children. No, I don't agree with you that don't at so? all. I don't. We oh, love in oh, America. We love to hold education up as our whipping boy. That that, that in an, in a society that often denigrates intellectualism and education in general, we love to hold it accountable for all of our problems. I really go more with Clayton Christensen and his analysis of education in America that it has done extraordinary jobs because we've changed the mission while the plane was flying uh-huh. so often <laughs> that, the pla- that the plane kept flying was amazing. Children, as they get older, go through different phases. If you're in junior high school, you are very concerned with conformity. Mm-hmm. And that's a natural thing. Because to break rules, you have to understand rules. Uh, yes, children... Of what age? Huh? Of what age? That would be like junior high. You see a lot of that? You really uh, see a lot of conformity? Give me an age. Huh? Give me an age. 13, 14. Oh, yeah. Early young children are, do do things differently, but not the, because they're breaking rules, because they don't know rules. Conformity to the group, I'd agree, but not conformity to societal conventions. I mean, look at teenagers. Well, they're societal conventions. Because they're making them up as they go along, yeah, right? Uh-huh. Yeah, but and group, they always will. Yeah, but just think... Just look, think at a, the, look at what the millennials are, have, have... Look at how they've changed the world so I far. I know, yeah. And they're doing it with their conventions, not my conventions. Mm-hmm. But, the, yeah, in the same... No, I'm just saying that... I look back to when I was growing up in the whole sort of new wave punk rock movement, and that, right. was, the, yeah. that was my period. I of remember rebellion. that too. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah, right. My period of rebellion, and as everyone does. So, but the social norms and the conventions within your own group to appear to conform sure. is there the pressure. So the, sure, I and mean, you need to learn to conform because you again you have to know the rules to break them. I did early in my career. I did. Um, some work on diversity in school-to-work programs. And we did the first book in California, in the state of California, when I was working with them for young white men around diversity in the workplace. And so I did a bunch of focus groups. And at one of the schools I went to, which was for kids who were not able to deal in the normal high school, either because of emotional or cognitive issues, with this focus group, and I talked to the counselor, and he said, here's the issue with these kids. They're constantly breaking the rules because they don't understand the rules. Mm-hmm. And it's terrifying for them because they actually don't know when they're breaking them. 
And that's different from being creative, which is knowing the rule and deciding to break it. Very different thing. Now, of course, you can not know the rule, break it, and then realize that you've done something brilliant. Accidents happen. Mm -hmm. But in general, and this is where I think as a person who deals in education, I want for our education system to be first a good education system. I want for people to learn deeply about the disciplines that they are in and to engage, to learn about them deeply enough that they can engage them in creative ways. Not to start off by brainstorming everything they can think about and call themselves creative. I want them to call themselves creative after they've learned and engaged these things in deep ways. We were interviewing a, a guest a couple of weeks ago, Elena Tabul, and she was talking observing how she has witnessed the education system she had, a very high-performing child, but felt that her schooling in Brighton Beach was mm -hmm. just so predictable and it's, she felt held back. Mm -hmm. It was cookie cutter. But she looks at what her children are getting in some of these amazing new Upper West Side schools. Mm -hmm. You know, obviously expensive, but experimental. And she said if only she'd had that education where it would have taken her. Oh, she's already She's doing, done pretty well, done hasn't pr she? Pretty damn well, but imagine <laughs> yeah. what she would have done. But that she describes the fact that the way that she observes that her, the kids are now taught, for example, they get a project on the Brooklyn Bridge. They ask one child, they ask the child to decide what interests them about the Brooklyn Bridge mm -hmm. and go off and do the research. So one might look at the architect, another one might look at the number of cars going over or the, 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 the traffic on it or whatever it is. They take their particular interests and then they encourage the child to explore now, isn't that creativity and isn't that exploration and curiosity? It's according. You have to be in the school. I've, been, I've worked in enough curricula and I've been in enough classrooms. Sounds terrific, probably great, mm -hmm. but you really have to be there and see what the carry-through is, how the different children's different perspectives are being linked together, what at the end of the day they have learned. Have they really learned a great deal about the Brooklyn Bridge? Or did they learn a few spotty things here and there because that was the questions, right? Mm -hmm. So it is the beginning of what could be a spectacular curriculum or what could be a terrible curriculum that looks like a lot of fun. And, you know, her comment on education, because so Gruber did his work almost entirely on case studies. And I still teach case study method and have a lot of students who do the case studies. And so we know a lot about a lot. I know a lot about a lot of people and very often you will find really accomplished people who will say their education was terrible charles darwin said his education was terrible it wasn't terrible <laughs> it was it was pretty amazing actually but it felt alienating to him because he was thinking differently already mm -hmm. einstein for sure bernard shaw said it was terrible he did end up educating himself largely but one of the things that happens with people who do develop distinct points of view is they look back and they realize there was a misfit with what education is because that's not education's primary mission. It is, I think, the mission and the important part of education to open up that space for people. But the primary mission is that we learn deeply about the things that we need to learn about, about math and science and history and literature and to learn it well and in exciting and interesting ways so that we can engage it with depth and sophistication. And if you can do that, the kids will be creative. 
it's not you know it's not always the the magical interdisciplinary curriculum and i've written interdisciplinary curriculums i love them but i've seen them really badly done what would first you... we need good education okay i i i, I agree with literature i agree with math and science but there are a lot of opinions out there at the moment that our education system is out of step with the century we're living in mm -hmm. so the curriculum the methodology the way of teaching the class sizes are all geared towards creating a workforce for a century that no longer exists actually the so, 19th not even the 20th <laughs> exactly so for someone like noel uval Noor harari who says we need to develop educate our kids they were required to develop the four c's critical thinking communication collaboration and creativity now how you do that mm -hmm. i don't know what the, the the right way is is it through a different way of delivering what you said which is making sure they they learn history they can understand the past to understand the present that they appreciate geography to understand the the, the critical nature of the environment we're living in to understand math and, and physics and science so that they can apply their problem-solving and cognitive abilities to solve the problems of today? Or is there something missing? Is there, do we need to be thinking about education differently from the way we did before? I have a great deal of respect for his work. This is one of the things that he's borrowing from a more general education discourse. And so we have started talking about thinking in these abstract terms, right? And I'll just deal with creativity, since that's what I look at a lot in curricula and schools, etc. And creativity is always about something. It is, it is not a free-floating thing. There's been a long, long debate within creativity research about whether the creativity is this general trait. So you're a creative cook, so you must be a creative artist, right? And then... If you took up macrame, wow, who knows what you would make? That's not true. You're probably going to be creative in one or the other. And we have good, there's a lot of evidence that it is not, it, it is domain specific, not domain general. And even the people who argue for domain generality generally say, even if in concept that's true, in practice it's not. Because you have to have this depth of understanding to actually do significant creative work, and you only gain depth of understanding in a few things in your life, not mm. everything. So, do we want creativity? Yes, but I think, again, in the sense that we want to be open to people engaging in in-depth, in sophisticated ways with this material that may be unusual. But the first is the depth and sophistication. And then it's the unusual. Mm -hmm. It is not vice versa, which is way it's far too often the way it's far too often discussed. I won't go into critical thinking because you know, but I think it has some of the same problems, not the exact same problems, but some of the same problems. I'm going to go back to that point you made about the social conformity, mm -hmm. because I mean a lot of recent neuroscience has uncovered the way that the, the brain works, and, mm -hmm. and for something like the prefrontal prefrontal cortex when it's engaged you're very aware of conventions social norms mm -hmm. that might inhibit the free flow of thinking and the and the natural creativity regardless of whether it's music or if you're in a let's say I'll give an example I come from the ad industry now if someone's not in the creative department 
they would be sitting in a meeting and being part of a brainstorm, probably less, more inhibited to volunteer an idea because they go, oh, I'm not, I'm not creative. You know, I don't want to be shot down. Now, if we are, if we know that that exists in the brain and the mind, the way the brain, not the mind, then how do we create environments where people can get more into? I think it's called the default mode net, the default node network, mode network, is it? Where ideas can just flow where you're not focused on a specific task and why do you want to do that all the time because we we want everyone to be creative in what a particular area mm. no well maybe not yeah, I, I always i always quote vonnegut on this and i think it's from hocus pocus everybody wants to build a house and no one wants to do the maintenance mm -hmm. so we all want to change our domains and we all want to come up with the greatest newest biggest ideas but we don't want to maintain the standards of music and art and and histor historiography and science, et cetera. We don't want to do the, that hard work that research is in psychology. And this is what my students are always, they think of psychological research as this, like this easy thing you go out and do. I say, there's no harder work in the world. And there's no more frustrating work. And there's no more tedious work. And in order to do long-term projects like writing a book, yes. you can't be thinking every minute of a different idea. Yeah. <laughs> you have to focus. And so there are times when we want people to ideate more freely. And there are just people who will just ideate freely no matter what you do to them. I've had some of those students. They struggle, believe me. But it's interesting. And there are other times when you want them to focus. And you know this from advertising. I, you know, my previous life was in advertising. Before I went to graduate school, I was in, in, in marketing communications, which had an yeah. ad component. And I was a creative director. And what do we want? We want the creative team to do all this ideating. We're not doing it. They're doing it. Why are they doing it? They're doing it because I need three ideas to present to the client. One needs to be way out there because the client wants to see a way out there, the one, but they're not going to choose it. One needs to be really conservative because we want them to pick the middle one. And if, if we don't have the really conservative one, they won't pick the middle one, right? And we need a lot of ideas to pick those three. So they're just cogs in a system. Mm -hmm. And they do their jobs really well, and we do our jobs really well, and we present it really creatively, and the client does their job by generally picking the middle one. Every once in a while, they'll surprise us. And we go, wow, <laughs> you went with the crazy one. Mm, now what are we going to do? But in general, that free ideation is in specific times and specific places. When you're thinking of the book idea, yeah, but not so much when you're in the middle of the writing of it. Okay. I need that prefrontal cortex. I'm, it I'm, is I'm, my friend. I'm with you, but we still need to have people that are conditioned to solve big, gnarly problems, and that's going to take divergent thinking. No. Now, th now no. it might come from, as you say, from just not out of the box, but their own, their, the, the, the way they think is divergent. So the same way if you look at someone like NASA, who maybe couldn't have solved the big problems they had to solve without doing their open innovation. But see, you're putting it in the individual again. Mm -hmm. And this is, this is where it's very hard for us to get out of this yeah. box that we are all in, right? That it has to be the individual. But actually, we need those divergent thinkers mm -hmm. and a team of people which is not so divergent in an organization which is some flexible enough to be adaptive but structured enough to be effective in a way that can adapt and apply things on massive scales, which is not coming from, which may have some divergent thinking involved, but in general, <laughs> yeah. it's stuff that we've already worked through, right? 
So if you think of it socially, yeah, you definitely need your divergent thinkers. Mm -hmm. They're important, but they're not the whole story. And if we're all divergent thinkers and we're all competing to all have the good idea, nothing's going to get done. Yeah. No, I'm with you on that. And I do this with because I consult to organizations, right, to corporations, and mostly around curriculum development and program evaluations and stuff they're doing. And I see this all the time where they say, we have to have more good ideas. But usually what they need is one or two good ideas and a whole lot of structure and expertise built around those ideas. So divergent thinking, terrific. I'm not sure we should be emphasizing it with our children so much, but you know, it's, it's fine. But it is not at all the whole story. And even the people who, if you look, and this is what we do on case studies, and Bob Weisberg has written beautifully about this. If you look at the real work of people like Frank Lloyd Wright or Darwin, or I have a student right now doing wonderful work on uh, Rita um, Montalcini, who did this, who was this pioneer in uh, neurology, who did most of her, a great deal of her work in her bedroom on chicks under Mussolini because she could not work in a laboratory. Just an amazing story, right? If you look at, at all of these people, there may be moments when they think divergently, when they kind of brainstorm with themselves, they try to get past something, they try to kind of free up, but most of their work is around developing a point of view and a set of practices and a set of heuristics that defines what they do. You mentioned the, that temporal relationship when you're writing a book of how the how the, the language the text, the text starts, starts to draw you into a relationship. Right. Does that can that be applied to an ex, a, an example like you just gave about the woman in her bedroom? Yeah, certainly. So there's no writing involved, but there might be experimentation. So suddenly, the oh, but she is right because she's writing. She's she's writing up findings. She's noting findings. She's doing one experiment after another, and how the experiments lead to one another, and what works and doesn't work. The, the, the experimentation in the lab has its own, again, it's symbol use, right? Mm. Symbol systems have their own dynamics, and we contribute and participate in them. What do you think about procrastination in the, in the process of creativity? I'm really good at it. <laughs> Glad you said that. <laughs> you and me both. <laughs> right. It can be great. Yeah, and I've, I've seen some TED Talks about, uh, you know, the, the, how good procrastinating can be, and it can be very good. You know, as an architect, you're trained to do that. They taught us, at least, that you always finalize at the very last moment because you don't know exactly what all you're going to be doing. And so you start working on napkins and you start and you do sketches, et cetera. And that meant we always had to pull all-nighters. Yeah. And so it was sort of trained to procrastinate. So there's certainly advantages, but, uh, but everybody, here's the other thing you know from case studies, everybody works differently. Yeah. They all have their own style because if you're going to think different things, you're gonna think them in different ways. How does creativity manifest itself in the work you do? Ah, so I have found myself at a rather advanced age, um, not tending my roses as I should be, but really working with a group of people internationally around this idea of participatory creativity, which takes this distributed cognition and developmental point of view and sociocultural systems theories and puts them together. Um, 
Edward Clapp up at Project Zero at Harvard is doing the same work. Vlad Glavianu at the Webster Center for Creativity and Innovation in Geneva is doing some very similar work. A similar dynamic work is being done by Ron Baghetto in Connecticut, a little, a, little different, a little different take, but also sort of within the same school. Giovanni Corazza at the Marconi Center in Bologna, uh, also looking at dynamics and, and how some of these things work in similar sorts of veins. So if I found myself in the, within the social distribution in a way I didn't expect to be. Hmm. So now I am actually called to take much more of a vocal lead or a vocal position in among this group of my very fine and talented and much younger colleagues. So yeah, it, it's everywhere. Interesting. I mean, what's curious? Okay, what's curiosity? I mean, you've got creativity and you've looked at the whole developmental. developmental side of creativity. But where does curiosity fit in? In many ways. But again, it depends on the a particular person and how they think about it and utilize it. It's a very, in a way, I think it's a much more powerful concept than creativity, curiosity is. Um, I'll tell you a little story here. Uh, I was doing some research on art education with uh, third graders several years ago. And um, one of the things we asked the teaching artists to do was introduce the idea of curiosity to the kids. And these are third graders, right? And they're not, so their metacognitive ability, they have metacognitive abilities, and you can see in some of them you see more than others. But it's not, it's not the most pronounced thing going on in the room, right? And so when she was doing the reflection, she asked, um, they were all doing murals about ecology. And uh, she asked, so what are we curious about? And the big question of the day is how you mix brown. And so that came up a lot about, you know, how, etc. And then this one kid raises his hand. He says, I'm curious about how we're going to change what we do. And she said, what do you mean? And she says, well, you know how some of us are really good at drawing trees and some of us are good at mixing colors and some of us are good at laying out the whole thing? I'm wondering how that's going to change all the researchers in the room drop their pencils, right? Wow. I mean, that is calling forth from a kid in the third grade, something you generally would not yeah. see from a kid in the third grade. It is a very powerful concept. And I, I've worked with, um, I've had a reasonable amount of clinical training in group dynamics. And the particular school that I was trained in, one of the things they teach you to do, or they ask people to do, is learn to sit with sit at the edge of the unknown until they're curious about it. And so we're all scared of the unknown, right? It causes anxiety. Just the unknown in and of itself causes anxiety. But if you can sit with it until you get curious, things change. Mm. And a lot changes when you can be curious about it. I don't know that it's as much an imperative as an opportunity. Beth Comstock, in the interview we did with her, she said people, for her, creativity is being comfortable and ambiguity. Mm -hmm. It is a big, it's a big part of it. Yeah, I thought that was an interesting way to sum it up. I'm a little bit conscious of time. I think we will have to do a follow-up and because I've got so many other questions about creativity in a different direction, we haven't taken it down. So I'm maybe going to have to pin you down at another time. But let's carry on. I've got to ask you one more question about creativity. You don't have to answer it this time. You can do it at the next interview. But it's, what's a question about creativity that people don't ask you that you wish they would? There are probably several. One is, and I'm actually working on this for a, an advertising group of, of graduate students. And it is, when do you not need to be creative? Because we do take as a given in the current zeitgeist that we should all be creative all the time. And I could give you an answer to that. Okay, good. 
defusing a bomb. <laughs> that <laughs> is certainly one of the times. Definitely not going to be creative at that moment. And probably your neurosurgeon. <laughs> yeah, probably don't want him. <laughs> probably yeah. at least you want him to do it the way he or she uh-huh. has been doing it in the past. So, I mean, that's one of the things I, th- I think when you start thinking about those boundaries, you start conceptualizing things differently and you do start getting to the maintenance of a field of knowledge and how you contribute to the maintenance as well as how you contribute to the change. Yeah, and I'd also like to then throw back at you that one and that not everyone has to be creative. So there's a question about when do you not have to be creative and then it's who do you not want to be creative beside beyond what you said if you're in a a group situation then you can't have everyone being divergent there's you know the torrance test of creative thinking which is a divergent thinking test they've done an extraordinarily over 50 years of follow-up with the original elementary school students who were tested and in the 2000 write-up of those kids were in the 60s so in 2000 they were they were getting toward middle age torrance at the end of his life wrote up the findings, and he called the findings for predictive validity disappointing at the time because it didn't seem that it predicted very well. But there was, he also profiled kids, and one of the uh, young women had become a sci- gotten her PhD, become a scientist, had solved some major problems in her field, but in making those tests had never scored well hmm. and had grown up scarred by this, by thinking she wasn't creative, and still felt she wasn't creative, in spite of extraordinary accomplishments in her field, right? And I don't think we should be doing that with this idea. Yeah. I think we should think about how we use this idea, and that's not, that's not what we want to do. Mm-hmm. So that person, maybe she isn't creative, maybe, she's, maybe she can conceptualize creativity differently, whatever. I don't think that we need to tell everybody they have to be this all the time. It isn't. I mean, I read a book last year by Professor Robert Lustig uh, called mm-hmm. Hacking the American Mind. Mm-hmm. And he talked a lot about for mental well-being and mental wellness that you this number of again, he used the, the C's. And one of them was about the importance of a daily or being creative. Now, whether it be creative in cooking or something for your own se- sense of self-actualization and worth is to feel that you can be creative. Yeah, and I would use, so that's fine to use the word that way, but I'm not sure that that conveys what a lot of us are doing when we do that. I would say to be engaged, Mm -hmm. to be truly participating, to be truly feeling we're contributing, and to be deeply engaged with what we're doing. I'm a pretty creative cook. I almost never use a recipe, and I cook a lot. But it's not so much that it do it differently. Do a cook off at some point. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah there you go. You're on. You guys will have to come into my place yeah. in upstate. No problem with that. Okay. Okay. <laughs> and but really, what is what is uh, relaxing and fulfilling about that for me mm-hmm. is the engagement with the materials, not how different the outcome is from hmm. other outcomes, and they're very often different. You know, they very yeah. often are. But that's not what rewards me what rewards me is the actual engagement with the act of cooking Mm -hmm. and that's why i want kids to love science and i want them to love art Mm -hmm. etc not just because they can do something different with it because they will if they engage deeply enough but that they really can engage (coughs) it's funny i I go along to this um event i don't know if you know it called creative mornings Mm -hmm. run by tina roth eisenberg Mm -hmm. a designer it's brilliant and she's been doing it for years and adam j kurtz who's um, 
a writer and he did a great talk recently about how being great is not important being bad is actually okay mm-hmm. and it's the essence of the talk i mean mm-hmm. he's br- he is brilliant in his own bad way mm-hmm. but it's the journey it's mm-hmm. the process it's not the destination. It's not what you end up. It's actually what you do going through it, as you said. Yeah. The application, the the focus, the the dedication, the persistence, the you know the procrastination, the coming back, and all that sort of thing. So it's really interesting that we we're probably not. We're in a society that conditions people to think about the destination, exactly. the end product, and yes. not that yes. the process. So. Yes. Very much so. Okay, we've reached a bit of consensus here. I'm going to jump into our quick fire questions, but I have to ask you, how has serendipity impacted your journey? Mm, how has serendipity impacted my journey? If it has. Meeting Gruber was serendipity. How? Oh, I just stumbled into the class. I didn't, it was not, I wasn't, I wasn't looking to study. I was very specifically working in cognitive linguistics around irony, et cetera. I wasn't looking for creativity and I thought it was kind of fluffy and silly. Wow. So that How was. How did you stumble into a class? Oh, you do that in graduate school. That would make sense to graduate students, right? Because there's some class, sometimes you go, I don't know what else to take. This guy, they say he's okay. I'll, I'll take it. So that was a pivot point. And, the, and that your... ended up being a pivotal point. Yes. Wow. Other forms of serendipity. That's a pretty big one. It's a pretty big yeah, one. Yeah, I think, that's a a big big one. One. I think, I think we leave one. it there. Bettina's got a question. It was about how you navigated a, 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 an apparent random journey from architecture, from studying ar- irony to going into creativity, into advertising and psychology and where you've ended up now. Mm-hmm. I think it was set up, if I had to do it in post hoc looking back. At the time, it felt aimless completely serendipitous in a sense. I, I was just doing what what felt kind of natural and right at the time. My friend Mary Catherine Bateson writes about the fact that you can always look at your life as a series of disjunctions or a continuity. And she takes that from her father, Gregory Bateson, right, that, that there's either one could work as a narrative. And so certainly this the disjunctions are obvious. If you want to look at the continuity, is that tension set up in my parents between the intellectual and philosophical and the aesthetic. And so I'm going back and forth between the aesthetic and the conceptual. And it's kind of like a pendulum. Subconscious. Yeah. But, you know, we find that one of the things we look at in creative development is what we call the network of enterprise. And it's how you organize your time and resources and how the different projects inform one another as you develop a point of view mm-hmm. over decades. And the people who are developing their networks of enterprise generally don't have a clue about what they're doing. I mean, they're, it's all, they're very confused. But if you look at it post hoc, afterwards you get this map of the development of purpose. You can see how their purpose in life developed mm-hmm. one step at a time. What principles do you stand by? What principles do I stand by? The immediate over the abstract, um, the complex over the reductive, individuality rather than individualism. Wow. We've not heard those before. No, never. Oh, brilliant. Well, they're quick far questions, so I can't come back on those. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, Saved by the rules. What what hard choices have you had to make that might have been tough at the time but turned out to be the right decision? 
oh, thank goodness you asked the ones with the right decision, <laughs> that were tough but ended up being the right decision. God, all the wrong decisions are coming to mind. Maybe you have to change that question to the wrong decision. <laughs> no, 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 you've asked it now. Yeah. That's part of the rules. I think, I think moving to New York was, I hesitated a lot, but I think it was the right decision. Mm-hmm. Just because of the of the intellectual community that's here. What year was that? Fertility. Oh, come now. You wouldn't ask that. Oh, ask Jose Freire. He asked that. And I asked uh, 1980. Okay. Oh, we should have been there then. It was a great time to be in New uh, York. Yeah, yeah. It was, the mud club was there. No, it was wonderful. Where do you go to discover new ideas or when you need space to think? I go a couple of places. I have a place up in the uh, upstate in the woods, and I'd spend about a third or to half of my time there. And so that is very much a contemplative place where I write a lot and and do a lot of things. So that's, that certainly is, I go to Paris a lot. And Paris to me is a very, it's a very social place. It's a place where time works differently than it does here. I was just cleaning out a, a closet of photos this last week. And I came across a photo, I studied photography while I was a student in Paris in the 1970s, a photo of the sign for the restaurant L'Escargot in 1978, and I just ate there last March. So there, you know, there aren't too many yeah. places in New York. There are a few. There yeah. are a few in New York oh, like are. that, too, yeah. but not a lot. Yeah, so I'll go with that, to the country and to the city. Okay. How do you keep up? With, no, who's made you reevaluate yourself? My students. Hmm. All the time. All the time. Okay. The next question, how do you keep up with technology? I don't. <laughs> the impossible question. What would your advice be to someone who's 20 years old who may have a dream? Or anyone, don't have to be 20 years old. It can be anyone um, who's got a dream. I'm being ageist there. Someone who, whatever the age, has got a dream, a goal, a grand ambition, but has been told, forget it, that's impossible. Well, first of all, never believe anybody who says something's impossible. That's, you know, the words never impossible. Any of those are dead giveaways that this is not something to pay attention to. What you need to do is look at your resources. And here, I have a student, I have, I have some advanced students doing case study work now. We're actually putting together a book that we're going to be publishing. And he looks at attention and how, you know, when, once you have questions, how you refine and focus your attention. And he used the wonderful word from theology, this goes back to my Catholic upbringing, grace. And it is a wonderful reinterpretation of the idea of grace, mm. that the world gives you things, but you have to be looking for them. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of it is what you're looking for. But the, at the end of the day, you're not going to be somebody new. You're going to become somebody by taking the resources you have and organizing them in a certain way and then adding resources as you go along. So the actions. There's nothing magic. There's no magic bullet. Yeah. The greatest blessing in life is that it is always hard. And that makes you think and that makes you act differently. And that is... So we're, there's not going to be an easy answer no matter what. What's your go-to karaoke song? <laughs> oh, uh, Dean Martin, Everybody Loves Somebody Sometime. Nice one. It was my dad's favorite. 
What book do you want us to offer um, the listeners that come up with the best comments in the comment section? So any book you think someone should read? Hmm. Not your book, obviously. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, I can't say my book, can I? What is a good book for people in the comment section? Something maybe you've read recently you think this is a book everyone should read. The sorts of things I read are not things everyone should read. I've just, <laughs> I've just read a wonderful book called The uh, Prophet, or no, The Infidel and the Professor, about the friendship between David Hume and Adam Smith. Mm-hmm. Lovely, lovely, wonderfully researched book. Really kind of shows you how that social distribution and temporal distribution work, right? But that's not what I think everybody should read. If you're talking about creativity, for people who are not scholars, right? I think that my colleague Vlad Glivianu's book on uh, distributed creativity is very good. Well, that's maybe for the people who are scholars. For the people who are not, I would say Rollo May's uh, The Courage to Create. Okay. Very old, 1970s book, but it's one of the ones that every time I drop it from my theories class, I regret it because it's something that students really gravitate toward. I think he, he, he talks about, he's also talking about that. He's talking about creativity as an encounter with your world as a symbol system. And it's not in the person. And it's not in the thing. It's in the encounter. And that's a really nice, and it's, it's a very easy read. My colleague, Pat Stokes over at Barnard, who comes from advertising, wrote a book called Creativity from Constraints. And it is also very accessible. And it comes at it, and it turns that idea of outside the box on its head. That not only are you not getting outside the box, most creative people, when they're doing their works, they're making their box much smaller. Mm-hmm. They're making the constraints much tighter. And that's what leads to the new idea. That's always the, the essence of a great brief. When Exactly. Really good you, you can see the advertising really uh, uh, background there, can't you? And final question. Who should we interview next? Oh, dear. Um, Edward Clapp at Project Zero. Okay. Project Zero. Sounds interesting. All right. We're going to wrap up. Uh, I'm going to thank you very much, Michael, for your time. Okay. Um, and oh, struggle to keep up with, uh, <laughs> you know, having spent my life in creativity, but never really thought about creativity the way that you have deconstructed it and teach it. In terms of that develop, dev- I can never say that word. Developmental. Developmental approach to it, but it's got me thinking, that's for sure. So I'd really like to acknowledge you for your clarity in complexity. Mm, And really appreciate the way you've been able to deconstruct and allow me to digest and hopefully the listeners digest something that probably a lot of people don't really think about. And just for your intellectual rigor and continuing to push the boundaries of this field, which I think is really important. Thank you very and much. It's been a and pleasure. And I look forward to that we can maybe do a follow-up. Oh, it would be great. Excellent. Thank you very much. Take care. Bye-bye. Cheers. Just go to iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or whatever podcast player you listen to subscribe and rate. And if you like the show, please give us a five-star rating as it helps more people discover us. If you want to learn more or have someone you'd like us to interview, just visit us at theimpossiblenetwork.com or DM us on Instagram at theimpossiblenetwork. For now... Be curious, be creative, and be open to serendipity. See you next time.